Hello, and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 12th, 2018, otherwise known as Different Colored Eyes Day. I'm Chris Almon, and with me as always are Mike Montgomery and, or I'm sorry, from Modern Builds, not and Modern Builds, and Ben Ueda from Homemade Modern. Two guys with different colored eyes, presumably. That's right. You, I got those greenish blue. I don't quite know, to be honest. I don't know. We shouldn't stay on this topic for too long. <laughs> hold them to it, everybody. Yeah. We, we don't have to hold on this subject. This is this is a bad national holiday. Yeah, let's throw it. As dumb national holidays go. Let's just throw it to what we're working on this week. Chris, what do you do? Sure. You start first this time. Normally, you're announcing. So go go ahead and okay. talk about your patio, your patio stuff. Yeah, so those two videos are going to both come out this week. By the time you are listening to this, I dropped a deuce, right? Did we decide that was a deuce or no? I can't yeah, yeah. Remember. same I think week. If it's in the, the same week. The, okay, if it's in the same week, it constitutes a deuce. So deuce right. will have been dropped by the time you're listening to this. Tuesday, the first one comes out. Thursday, the second one comes out. So make sure you go watch both of those. Um, yeah, they were. I'm pretty happy with the way the projects came out. They're definitely more in like, you know, the, the DIY side of things. It's a lot of like boxes and plywood and stacking things, all that kind of stuff. Um, actually, you know what the biggest struggle I had for this one was the thumbnails because I was taking them not in the normal environment. Like I'm so used to just using my photo wall and I have it all set up that I can get it done quick. Yeah. This one, man, I was out there at like, because this weekend was crazy hot. It was like a hundred and 15 degrees or whatever I was out there at like 6 30 in the morning doing my thumbnail before it got too hot and while the shadows were not bad but it was I spent a long time man I, I it made me appreciate how valuable a photo wall is once again yeah if you're producing content get yourself a photo wall big time so I've only seen pictures and everything's looking really really cool so far I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that you were saying it's a little more on the DIY side and yep. so I would assume you kind of went a, a little bit away from the joinery you traditional do, traditionally do to a little bit more like glue and screw type stuff. Yeah, so like if you look at that first one that will come out on Tuesday, it's pretty much just all stacking. So nice. there's not really any joinery. It's the build-up way of like having like rabbits and dados, just, but just by stacking things up. Um, pretty much glue a few screws just to like reinforce things, uh, and then you know to hold the table top onto the wall. So it's okay. It's kind of four sections. So there's a big chunky bench, a small cabinet, a like wall partition between those two things and then a tabletop on the back of that. So like the wall parts just laminated together. It's just two pieces of plywood laminated together that's then screwed into the bench because the bench is like the heaviest part of the whole piece. So that's what keeps it nice and stable. And then to attach the tabletop, it's just some uh I guess they'd be called like folding L brackets. Yeah. So that the I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast or not, but yeah, the uh, because we got like kids that'll run around in the backyard. I wanted to make the tabletop so it can flip down. Otherwise, it's like perfect. Head just height. To, like smack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just run into it and get the top of your head chopped off. Nice. So um, yeah, we we use the the foldable L brackets. I guess they're called. So yeah, there's nothing really like complex about it. The only hard part of this project would be it's just like a bunch of big pieces. Right. So moving everything around, like it was a. It was a pain in the butt working on it in the garage just because I was like having to step on everything the whole time. So as soon as I would get one piece done, I would just like take it to the patio and just get it out of the way to work on the next ones. But that's cool. I mean, mean, it it was for being simple, kind of simple techniques and simple tools. I like that you still introduced interesting geometry. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that would be a good takeaway from this one is like there's no 
single part of it that's like anything angular or hard to cut, but because it's different kind of like like boxes that are different shapes and then it's got the wall with an angle, when everything comes together, it looks a lot more geometric than any one single piece is. Right. The whole is more complex than any individual piece. Right. That's a good nice. way to put it. Sweet. So Ben, I'm excited for you, dude. You're like you're really breaking ground. Have you all poured concrete on the tiny house yet? Yeah, we did. We, we poured concrete. Awesome. Uh, 60, 62 yards of concrete. Wow. So that was seven trucks with the last truck only being, you know, partially full. Um, it was a, it was a nice balmy 105 degrees. Um, <laughs> but no, it was, it was interesting because concrete is one of those things where you have to be completely ready because once the trucks start coming, they were scheduled every 10 minutes. So oh, wow. the fear is that you're, not ready, you're not pushing out the concrete fast enough and this truck start piling up on the site and you know the concrete starts mixing from the plant so you know it has a it has a working life that's uh, the clock's ticking on. So it's a little bit stressful, but it went pretty smoothly. There is times when uh, for one of the parts of the foundation that's a little bit farther from where the trucks could reach, we had to use a pump so they're actually the concrete truck is dropping the concrete, out of a chute into this big hopper that's attached to the pump and then you're pumping the concrete through a hose to the far parts of the of the uh, foundation formwork so it was cool uh got the drone out got some good footage and uh yeah uh we took the forms the the boards off the outer perimeter of the, of the formwork today but uh we need to wait i think uh it'll be not until i get back from haven that we rent the crane and place the the shipping containers on on the on the slabs. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a long day. It was like a full ten hour day of constantly trucks coming in and out, troweling, all that stuff. I was mostly working camera um, and sort of you know learning more and, and trying to stay out of the way. Um, but after sort of watching this, I feel pretty confident that if I was doing a smaller project. I could order the trucks myself and, and, and manage the whole concrete process with like maybe one or two people to help. So it was really cool just to see how they do it and, and see the way they just set about managing uh, something like that. But yeah, no, very excited. Uh, so with the, the first, con- so now that you have concrete poured, that means that you made it through your first round of those initial inspections prior to pouring? We did, yeah. The inspector came out and, uh, you know, took a tour. It was... It was a little bit nerve-wracking, um, but he was really nice, and he actually told us a few things that caused us to change some design things right on the spot. So we were planning on having all the plumbing uh, for the, the bathrooms and stuff embedded into the slab, so we actually had all these big PVC pipes for drains and supplies uh, already stuck under the rebar, and he was like, you know... I know that's what the design called for, but if you want to just put those into the level of the container themselves after you place the container so you don't have to line it up perfectly, he's like, I'm fine with that. Oh, and nice. That was a huge relief. So we were able to change the, the the foundations right before, the day before we poured the concrete based on what he was sort of saying. So we also found out that we don't have to have another inspection for, for quite a while. He sort of signed off on all the the sort of testing of the shipping containers and the, the lead paint kind of stuff. So it went well. And it turns out our uh, 
he's also the inspector's also a YouTuber. He has a YouTube channel on reptiles. Oh, hey, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, did you get so any I, content with him, like talking or anything that you think will make the cut? No, uh, we we didn't want to put him on on uh, camera. Yeah. Because you know maybe maybe when the project's all done to sort of interview him about what he thought about the project, but not during sort of an active uh, review process. Yeah, I can t- I can totally understand that. Don't want to get caught. Also, you don't want to get him in trouble either. Like if you're not supposed exactly, to be right. moving the plumbing around or anything like that, you don't want to get him caught. Yeah, and it's also just a thing where you know how like in golf. I mean, I don't watch golf, but uh, I was listening to it, and people were saying that now, like, watchers will call in, like, fouls, right? Which is just, like, the ultimate troll move. Like, if they see somebody, like, doing something that's technically not by the rules, they'll call in and, like, report them wow. from their couch. <laughs> that's First of all, <laughs> if you do that, you're a loser. Yep. Uh, and, you know, people have been asking when I'm going to publish the, the design documents for this project. And we'll publish them, but not till everything's done. And that's also why we're not releasing a lot of uh, video while we're sort of building it is because there are a million armchair quarterbacks that are going to say things that are not technically true or true in some circumstances, but not others. Uh, everyone thinks they know building code, but it's in, not only is it more complicated for any one person to completely ma- master it's different and it's enforced differently in different regions and interpreted differently uh, the way often many legal codes are. So it's, uh, and it's constantly changing. So that's one of the reasons why we haven't published a design yet is just because, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll show people all the information when it's done and, and sort of talk about how things change along the way. But um, yeah, no, that's why we didn't put them on camera. <laughs> nice. Mike, what do you got going? Well, this week I am putting out a video, an- another kind of shop-oriented project. The track saw video had a lot of good feedback, and so, like I was mentioning with my kind of New Year's resolutions of diving into ideas and making sure things are kind of fully explored, I'm doing another shop kind of oriented thing. I'm taking the 18-volt cordless miter saw that Ryobi makes, which I used on my garage storage system video, and I made a portable kind of miter saw station for it. So it's a cool saw. It's really great for cutting two by fours, one by fours, anything that's not wider than, you know, four inches. And for being an 18 volt, you know, the same thing as your drill, it's great. And it's really affordably priced. But the bad thing about it is it's got a really small bed. And so if you're cutting anything longer than two feet, your offcuts are always falling to the ground and they're hard to manage. In hindsight, it would be perfect if they designed the miter saw so that the bed of it set an inch and a half above the ground so that you could just use a scrap two by four that was laying around Mm. as kind of a little bed extension so that everything was always supported. But unfortunately, it's right at about, I think, an inch and three quarters or two inches. Uh, Mm. Whatever the height is, it's exactly two pieces of three quarter inch plywood and one piece of three quarter inch MDF because three-quarter inch plywood is slightly under. So what I did is I made a cool plywood platform that's got removable wings on it. It's kind of hard to, to kind of explain audibly, but the video will be out by the time this is, so you can go check out the YouTube video. But it's got two removable wings that can extend out, you know, if you want them to be a foot off of the saw, great. If you want them to be 10 feet off the saw, great. But they're the same height 
as the bed of the saw now so that you have plenty of support, whether you're cutting eight foot long two by fours, which is what I was doing a lot of this past week, or if you're cutting, you know, 20 foot long boards, it, it really doesn't matter. And the cool thing about it is everything is kind of magnetic that's removable. So everything can snap back into place. The miter saw has a handle built into it. So everything is self-contained and you can pick it up and carry it away. It's about 15 pounds and go set it up. Nice. You're like the, uh, you're like the next Matthias. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe a little <laughs> bit more agreeable. Uh, <laughs> Have you jumped on it yet? Well, this one just so, kind like, of sits flat on straight. the ground. I guess you could always put it on a set of sawhorses if you didn't want to be working on the floor. But this one's kind of a pretty low, low profile gig. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy with how it came out. I think it's another, uh, it was something me and Ben were talking a lot while we we're in California is that I think a lot of people on YouTube have a lot of people's quote unquote dream shops, you know, whether it is a garage workshop or a, a standalone shop, a lot of people on YouTube have, uh, this was a topic on making it even their shops are kind of what a lot of people aspire to. Whereas I tend to use pretty basic tools. Ben tends to use pretty basic tools and we also use them in a slightly unique way compared to a lot of people making videos. And so I think there's a lot of value in making shop projects. I was pretty, Mm -hmm. I was pretty turned off on the idea whenever I was setting up my past shop uh, because I really wasn't invested or interested in running a lot of dust collection hosing and making content about that because there's people better than me doing that. Uh, But it wasn't until, you know, we kind of realized that what we're doing unique is what's valuable rather than doing what everyone else is doing. So if I can keep coming up with unique tool projects, you know, like the track saw or like the, the miter saw stain, I'm going to keep doing them as long as people like them. No, I thought it was pretty cool. Like you showed us some pictures of it and it's very simplistic in the way that you made it, but it, it's functional. Like it's easy to just kind of pack it all up. If you're cutting something long, like, you know, it's not, the most ergonomic thing in the world, like you were saying, but it gets the job done and it's pretty quick and easy and anybody could bust it out pretty quickly. I think that's kind of the, the uh, value of it. Yeah. That and being able to just tuck away completely. So right. kind of the same way, like the track saw can just lean against a wall somewhere when you're not using it. This can too. It's the, the entire footprint of it, whenever it's condensed down is I think 12 inches by 36 inches. So, and it's, you know, what, 12 inches deep or something like that. The height of the saw when it's collapsed it down. Right. So basically just it's like extends a the sides of your, it extends the sides of your miter saw by like a few inches on each side. Yeah. That, when it's compact. That and the fence, it gives you a lot bigger reference plane for the fence. So I think it, it gives you a little bit more kind of confidence in making square cuts too. Well, it's definitely a cool project and be interested to see how, if a million people build them. A million? A million people are going to have this miter saw station now. Hopefully, I don't. I don't see why not. <laughs> yeah, the, other, the magnets are an interesting choice. Like, I feel like kind of magnets are a little underutilized as like a handy kind of shop thing for holding uh, templates and stuff like uh, that for the square. Ever since I started using magnet clamps for welding, I've been thinking more about how they could be useful. The the, the little gadget that I've been playing with lately that uses them. It's uh, by a company called Micaton, and they're these like magnet drivers. They're like a little sleeve that slides over your driver bits. And what's awesome is that it's a, it's like one of those rare earth or neodymium or whatever. Neodymium. Sort of shiny magnets, the ones that are really strong. So it has like a little magnetic washer that goes on, on, on like a rubber sleeve that slides all the way to the end of the 
driver bits so that the screw is held on really, really firmly. So you could like, you know, if, you, if you're trying to like drive a screw into a really uh, kind of difficult to reach place, uh, it's really nice that it holds it on really securely. And ever since I saw that, I'm like, hmm, why aren't we using these a little bit more? So I'm actually working right now on a, a lounge chair and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can use uh, the, the frame of it as steel and then doing some, some sort of upholstered cushions and trying to figure out how I can use magnets to kind of keep the cushions from slouching and hold them in the right place by sort of sticking to the frame. That's a really cool idea. And something I didn't realize about the neodymium magnets is you can get them with a hole in the center so that you can attach them with screws. And it's even got a little countersink to it so the screw sits flush with the magnet. Yep. So then and you don't have to worry about gluing them in or any of that nonsense. Yeah, I actually ordered them in bars. So they have like rectangular bars that have two holes that are beveled. Very uh, cool. Dr- drilled in, uh, on either end. So check them out. Awesome. So what are we talking about this week? I called in to our Instagram followers at Modern Maker Podcast, and we got some really good DMs, and we had one standout that I think is a, a pretty good topic for today. Ben, do you have it? Okay. This question is from Mike, LLY44 on Instagram, and he says, for small business owners creating newer ideas slash products, what is the best way to get constructive feedback before dedicating time, effort, resources towards the product. So uh, I can start with this one. Yeah, I think, you know, thinking of your time and resources as your capital is a good way to think about it if you're if you're really serious about the business side of things. And anytime you make something or expend those, you're taking on risk that may or may not actually result in sales and revenue. So the thing I, but at the same time, if you don't take any action and take any risk, you'll never figure out what works. So what I think is a is an interesting strategy that I don't see that many people uh, doing is uh, sort of leveraging digital uh, products like three D modeling and making different sort of renderings or different size options as sort of alternatives to one built piece. So for example, if I was going to make a uh, 18 Something inch speed square time, by like, chance yeah, or no uh, let's say like a furniture piece like let's, yeah. let's assume the, he's sort of a woodworker and making furniture so let's say uh, I have a I have a good idea for a dresser mm-hmm. and you know it's going to take a long time it's going to be made out of probably an expensive hardwood so uh, if I made a whole bunch of different sizes of those it would be a lot of risk you'd also they take up a ton of room so one thing that he might consider would be Make one that you think is like the most general. Photograph it, really show all the details, work through all your joinery and your whole process for how you're going to make them, but then get into 3D modeling, SketchUp, Fusion, whatever whatever you want, and then sort of on your website, if you're putting them up for sale, show them in a whole bunch of different drawer configurations with different interior partitions and different overall sizes and dimensions so that you have uh, a catalog full of different options because a lot of people come to like you know they're buying furniture for a specific place in their house and so they may love everything about it but if it's four inches too wide or too long they're not going to buy it so Mm -hmm. i think using a digital product so you don't have to spend the time to build multiple prototypes just to show that it can come in different sizes and configurations so having some combination on your site where you're showing one built object then you're showing digital renderings or just line drawings of how it could come in different sizes. The other thing I would say to take it even a step farther is show little, you know, floor plans of typical bedrooms, 
living rooms or sort of kitchens, depending on what the piece of furniture is, so that people could sort of see how it would fit relative to a typical, you know, 12 by 12 foot master bedroom or something like that. Yeah, I really like what you were saying about the idea of getting using software so that you're not using as much physical time. And Chris, something whenever you were doing your furniture line a little while mm-hmm. back that really impressed me was how good of a quality of renderings you were able to get, I think, out of SketchUp, correct? On all of your pieces. Uh, so I've gotten some good ones out of SketchUp, but for the better ones, I so for the ones that I used on that, it was a render, but I had my friend Richard Ingstrom, who does a lot of rendering. I actually hired him to do it. Right. Um, using Blender. He used Blender, but it was from a SketchUp model. So it's stuff that, you know, I'm sure if you dedicated a couple hours to learning it, it can get done. Or honestly, you you know, if it's a, prod, a product that's worth a lot of money right. and costs a lot to produce each one, even if you have to pay a couple hundred bucks to have somebody render them out for you, if you're just providing the model, you know, that can be done probably, I would guess, fairly cheaply, at least in comparison to actually building it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing with that same idea is I think that's an easy way of experimenting with color, too, is I don't think a lot of people want to commit to painting the pieces of furniture that they've built, especially if they're using that as kind of their prototype that they're selling on. But if you can go into Photoshop and you can show, you know, this is what happens when all the drawer fronts are white or if they're colored or if the inside of the cabinets have this kind of accent color, uh, I think it'll kind of show a lot more versatility or staging options, if nothing else. Right. And I think also to that point that Ben made of even just using line drawings, I think if people can see one finished product, it really like their mind can do most of the work just from seeing a line drawing. They'll kind of complete it. And I think you can get most people to like make their final decision just based on those two, you know, a line drawing and one finished piece, I think was probably sufficient for most people. I would think so. Totally. And then the other thing uh, on top of that, if you do start getting orders for those other sizes that you don't have a, an actual as-built done for, uh, well then, when those orders comes in, you can photograph them and keep adding and slowly infilling more, you know, more shown inventory on your website as you're getting these sort of semi-custom commissions. Uh, this is something we did a lot when I was uh, running Free Green, which was uh, my sort of second company, where we were publishing architectural blueprints. So anytime somebody wanted customization, you know, we would charge for that. And it was great because we would then often, unless they asked for something really weird that nobody would want, we would often add to our inventory as we were producing revenue. So we were increasing the amount of traffic we were getting because we were adding more designs to our website as we were making money from the custom commissions of producing more plans. So um, if if you're trying to bootstrap your small business, and you're worried about sort of risking time and materials, then I I would lean a lot on the digital side of things. Uh, A lot of the software can be downloaded for free. Uh, Get better at it. It's going to make you a better designer. It's going to let you plan out. And also, if your business does take off, you're going to have nice documents that as you hire people to build your designs, uh, you can have them, you know, you have a, it's not just in your head. You have actual sort of instructions that people can follow. Absolutely. You know, let's take this question and kind of spin it a little bit. So for people that don't have a small business, just turn product into project. So if you're looking for constructive criticism or feedback on project ideas, do you guys have any thoughts on that or anything that you've done in the past with things, either, you know, shopping it to a small circle of people that you know, or maybe sending it out to like, you know, on Instagram for just anybody's feedback? Do you guys do any of that kind of stuff? I would say when it comes to getting constructive feedback, 
uh, know what you're looking for, right? Like I don't want to just put a project out there and just say, give me feedback. Right. Um, for the project I'm working on right now, I recently asked Jimmy DeResta a question and it was specifically about how to connect sort of leather to steel. And mm-hmm. so I don't want just, you know, a, a, a million, a million yeah. things. I wanted, I know that's something he's done and I want uh, it from a source that I trust. Um, also, I don't have a million questions about the lounge chair. I really just had one. So knowing first whether or not, uh, and a lot of times people say they want constructive feedback when they really just want attaboys, uh, <laughs> which is okay. Like that's, that's yeah. important too. Like that, that's a, you know, encouragement is, it, there's nothing bad about wanting encouragement. It's, it's nice. I mean, that's how community is created and maintained is, is by those, the, the positive interaction as much as it is the, the critical. I mean, the easiest way in, in the broadest sense is just to, you know, make a video of it or do a post on it or submit it to Reddit and things like that. But again, I don't, for me, the feedback is more credible often in terms of numbers than it is in terms of words. Um, cause I find a lot of the people whose opinions I care the most about it aren't really big commenters or if they are, they're like friends of mine and they just say attaboy. Um, right. and a lot of idiots sort of say things that are factually incorrect. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just putting something out there is a good way to get a lot of it, but it doesn't mean it's actually good. And more importantly, it doesn't mean you should follow it, but seeing the number of people that share whatever you posted to me is a much more sort of. Uh, constructive type of feedback because you're seeing that for whatever reasons people thought this was worth uh, bugging a friend and sharing uh, to them. So the you know constructive feedback is so broad yeah. that I would say that the best way to get good feedback is to narrow it and really you know show the project and ask the specific questions that you want to know rather than to say hey tell me what you think internet. And I think that extends mm-hmm. to personal feedback as well. So. I think there it's on two levels is one whenever you're looking for you know a circle of people that you kind of respect their opinions on so whether it's like uh I'm messaging with John Malecki all the time about YouTube thumbnails or I'm asking you guys about projects all the time or I'm asking you know friends that I have personally about different things that I respect their opinions on so whenever you're asking people don't just ask them because they're in front of you because you want to make sure that they have an opinion that you actually respect and you think is genuine. You don't want people that are just going to pander to you or say that that looks really nice because they want you to be happy. You want to make sure that the people you're getting feedback from, that when they're giving you negative feedback, one, you take it with a grain of salt, but you should appreciate that just as much or more as when people are giving you positive feedback. Because it's a lot harder to tell somebody something that you don't like about what they just built. Right. Now, it, oh, go ahead. So an- another way, if you're, if you're doing it in terms of a business, you try to sell the pieces. You build prototypes and you put them up for sale. You price them high. You see how long it takes for it to sell or if it doesn't sell at all. You lower the price. You test it again. You get feedback through uh, maybe doing a Facebook ad spend, right? And actually promoting your project and then watching the results. To me, people often think of critical feedback is some expert seeing your work and then telling you all the things you could do better or uh, telling you the things, you know, complimenting you on what you did well, or telling you where you made mistakes. To me, that doesn't help. That's nice from the sort of craftsman journey, but isn't necessarily always that helpful from a business standpoint. Uh, there's so many people that I can learn a ton about woodworking and making 
um, but doesn't mean they have solutions for my business. Chris, like, you know, you can teach me a ton about joinery and stuff like that, but that doesn't mean, you know, and will definitely make uh, my, my work better, but it doesn't mean that that's going to translate to more dollars and cents in my particular business model. So I think right. that's, that, that's the other sort of caveat about this question is that he framed it in the terms of business, whereas if it's a project, it would be much more about like, how do you get like your miters done like that? How do you avoid getting chip out when you make those sort of 45 degree beveled cuts? Um, mm-hmm. So again, knowing specifically what you really want, I think is important. And if it's from a business standpoint, your best feedback is going to be doing test sales, test marketing runs where you're looking at the ROI on what you're sort of spending and sort of measuring that, switching a variable and then testing again. Yeah. And that makes me think that a craft sale or a craft show uh, as even though that's something that I wouldn't want to hang my hat on and rely on constantly just because it is a lot of working, you know, making batch orders. But I think that's a great place to test products because not only are you putting yourself and all of your work in front of other people, but it's probably in front of, even though it's not necessarily competition, it is competition. There's a lot of people that are also doing things similar to you so that you know if you're making cutting boards and there's three other people making cutting boards at the same craft fair and yours aren't selling, Look at what the other people are doing that is selling, or if yours are selling, know why. You know, ask people what they like about them, ask people what they don't like about them, and uh, and I think that's a, a good thing for in-person feedback and to make a little bit of money on the side, too. To go back real quick to, yeah, like who you ask for feedback, the different groups. So I have in the past asked like broad questions on Instagram, that kind of thing, and I've kind of steered away from it just because... I've got a lot of feedback and a lot of it was really good. Some of it not so great. Um, and the reason that I actually steered away from it is just because, and, and this might be a weird little tick with me, but I started feeling bad that like, oh, people are like spending this time giving me feedback and most of it I'm not going to do, obviously. Right. And so then <laughs> is that going to like cause a negative in their head of like, what? Well, I gave this guy feedback and he didn't listen. But like, obviously it would be impossible to listen or I guess you could listen to a thousand different ideas, but you come out with some kind of crazy hodgepodge of a project. <laughs> <laughs> and and now I tend to have like kind of a smaller circle of people that, that I'll tend to ask and that I trust. Um, and I find that like with design, I usually don't ask that much, that many questions. And I think it's just because I'm comp, that's what I'm more confident in. So like, I feel like, okay, if I've labored over this and I like it, I, if I feel like I genuinely like it, then I'm good moving forward with it. I don't need any, you know, pass on the back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But what you'll notice are like thumbnails, like I'll ask you guys all the time about thumbnails and, and a bunch of different people, just because that's something that I'm not quite as confident about. And that I know like, oh, there's things that I'm not thinking about. Like I'm only thinking about it the way that I want to look at it. Whereas like you really should be thinking about it more as like how the audience is going to look at it. So I'll, I will get feedback from you guys on those sorts of things. So I think that's one thing to think about is like if you have things that you are confident about, maybe you don't need feedback in those. And just being specific about the things that you really do want feedback on that you really feel like you could improve upon. Right. And the the last thing I'll say about this is ask people that are the closest to this to the end result that you want. So if you're a custom furniture builder, asking other custom furniture builders might seem like the obvious thing to do for for feedback. But I would say uh, that's going to help you more internally on how you make things, but not necessarily on the business side. I would ask interior designers, people that are going to be closer to sourcing your things, people that are on the, the other side of the equation 
that are responsible for purchasing a whole bunch of furniture for a new office or for a wealthy person's home. Talk to people that are close to the end financial result that you want because they might say, hey, you know what? Uh, you thought you were looking for a commission for a dining room table, but what we actually need is a love seat that fits this thing and there's nothing on the market that has this kind of style profile, this material combination that fits in these types of uh, room scenarios. So make sure there, there's talking to your peers is nice, but that's much more about sort of encouragement and community and other furniture builders aren't going to buy your stuff, right? Yeah, that's some so really you, good advice. Yeah. So you, you want to look at the, you know, I saw this in architecture so much where architects would design for other architects and their business side would just suffer because they were they were basically just preaching to the choir and talking about their own internal sort of design issues. Uh, that's great for a hobby. It's terrible for a business. You know, case in point, Mike, if Ryobi had told you, hey, we got this new miter saw coming out, how high should we make the base off of the ground? Right. Ask the people who are going to be using it and buying it because it's an easy answer, not, you know an inch and five eighths. It just needs to be an inch and a half even. Perfect. Yeah. So that's a good example. <laughs> oh guys, I got a tattoo. I got a, I got a, oh, yeah, you I got, got a, a tattoo. new tattoo. I, I wanted to bring that up. Cause I feel Did like you do it yourself. No, I wish. <laughs> so I've, I've tattooed myself twice. Um, but it's, I'm left-handed and I got it on my left arm, which means I would have had to have tattooed myself with my off hand. And, uh, I was I, I was I just wasn't doing that. You're not, not a chance. You had a stranger of tattoos. So, <laughs> but yeah, I got a I got a maker tattoo. I did it now because we're gonna be like launching maker brand very legitly soon, and I've planned on having this tattoo for a year or so. I just haven't pulled the trigger, and I didn't want it to look like I was branding myself with our company or something like that. So <laughs> I was like, I'm getting it done now so that there's that doesn't ever come. Gotta get up. it done before. Yeah. So I had to. I just wanted to clear the air with that one, but. I've gotten a lot of cool feedback on it. Uh, I had a couple of people actually ask me if they would be like, if I was okay, if they got that tattoo. And I was like, yep. All I did was go on Google and find a font that I liked. So um, if anybody's interested in getting a maker tattoo of their own, find me on Instagram, just DM me and I'll, I'll give you the font and the size and everything so we can have matching tats. You guys can be tat brothers. Yeah. Now wait, Ben, was it about, it was about a year ago that you got your tattoo, right? Uh, Yeah. So that means I'm due next year. I got to start thinking so of what I want tattoos. for my tattoo. Face. I, think, I think you should actually get your glasses tattooed on <laughs> yeah. your face. If I ever get LASIK, I'll get my glasses tattooed on my face. I actually think that would be a really cool one. If, I mean, if you were like, you know, hardcore tattoo person. But to <laughs> yeah. get like the shadow of your glasses tattooed on your face. I think that's Just a horribly shadow? irresponsible idea. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever did get LASIK, Chris, you could get the Four Eyes logo on you somewhere. It would make sense. Yeah. I think I, you know, I've said if I did get LASIK for some reason, I think I would have to keep wearing glasses at this point. I'm locked in. <laughs> Someone offers you free LASIK. You're like, I'm, I'm sorry. I just can't do not it. Not interested. It's not on brand. Sorry. All right. Should we do That's another funny. question? Yeah, absolutely. This one's from Pedge001. And it says, other than spending more time making video content, what is something you have doubled down on that has paid off? and that others likely perceived as a risky choice. Uh, so for me, this has been uh, real estate endeavors. So the, you know, the, the apartment building that I uh, designed and financed and developed in Boston uh, at the time basically took all of my money. Uh, I had some investors too from the outside, 
but it was literally all my capital was in that building. So it was really, really risky. It was also, um, you know, developing a three unit apartment building in, you know, Boston right near a subway station is not a small financial, you know, uh, undertaking, but I knew the land was a really good deal. And, uh, I had some ideas about how to sort of lower the cost of construction and really strip it down. So was betting on myself to sort of pull it off and knowing that I was going to be, you know, it might take a lot of sweat equity in addition to all my actual equity. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was something that was risky. It was stressful. Um, but ultimately, financially, it, it didn't did incredibly well. And one of the things I did to really stretch out the dollars was saying, uh, you know, I was going to live in the top unit. So when I was talking to my contractor. I'm like, you know, I, I designed it all the way to the sort of fullest, like, a, you know, the, you know, full interior partitions, walls, you know, trim boards, baseboard, crown molding, all that stuff. So I had him give me sort of an itemized cost of what it would t- cost for, you know, to do the full apartment. Um, and then I s- removed all those things from the budget because I was going to do those myself. So I saved about 60000 to $70,000 of construction expenses because it's just a lot of days of labor for all that. But it also meant when I moved into the place that I was basically going to have floors and walls and uh, that's it. No. In a way, though, that's really attractive because it's a total blank slate. Yeah. You know, the bathroom was done, but there was no kitchen sink or anything like that. Just sort of a refrigerator in the corner and like a hot plate. So... It was a, you know, and that was literally my last dollar went for the final cons- payment to the contractor because it was, you know, just construction costs alone were, were over $800,000. Wow. Um, so it was an expensive building. But, uh, you know, it, I needed to do that in order to sort of, you know, pull it off and, 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 and get all the financing done. And then I built out all those, uh, the interiors, the, the countertops, everything else myself, saved a ton of money and also got to do it the way that, you know, the, the way it sort of worked and, and fit for me. So uh, that, that'd be one example of, of something outside of content. What about you, Chris? You know, that's so in hearing the question, I felt like I have a few things that pop into my head, but none of them meets all the criteria. So I have things that I've done where I've taken a risk, but they haven't necessarily been successful. I've had <laughs> things that I've done that have been successful, but they haven't really been very risky. Okay. Um, and so um, the thing that actually pops into my head that is kind of the opposite of what he's asking is something that I want to do that is a little bit risky is do less content production, which is something that probably just the way that like I've already kind of booked things up is going to be more towards early next year. Um, This year I took on a lot of extra content that I normally wouldn't have. And part of the reason for doing that was that I knew I would have more time away from work with the kid being born, which could have been risky because I could have ended up having to spend a lot of time there, but luckily it's been pretty good so far. But um, I do want to actually kind of scale back a little bit on the content production, you know, I'd still be putting out quite a bit, at least one thing a month, but, and do bigger things. So kind of eliminating the smaller ones and giving myself less excuses for putting off the really big projects that I want to do that I keep putting on the back burner right now, just because I know I can't squeeze them in when I have so many other deadlines. And then changing my business model so that I'm getting a little bit more out of each project that I'm doing rather than just being like, you know, project sponsored, 
moving on project sponsored content, project sponsored content, which is the way that it's kind of going right now. So that could be kind of a short-term risk because you're giving up a lot of money that you know you could kind of lock in and have guaranteed. Um, but I think it will benefit me in the long run. And I was talking to Dolores about it the other day and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I mean like you try it and you might lose out on some money in the short term and worst case scenario, it doesn't work out. You could always go back to the old way of doing it and just be back to where you were and all you would have lost out on was those like few months that you weren't doing it. So I don't think it's really that risky, but it's something that I've kind of been wanting to do. I think it would be um, really great because it would allow you to go a lot deeper into each project. So if you are doing some kind of complicated joinery where in a normal video you would take 30 seconds so that people just get the grasp of it and then move on, you would be yeah. able to spend, you know, potentially like a full video explaining it in detail. Yeah. Yeah, that. And I think that a lot of like the new either techniques or materials that I'd like to work with, I keep putting off because I just don't have the time. So like bent lamination, maybe getting into metal a little bit, doing more with concrete, all those things are things that I want to do, but I just keep putting them on the back burner because it's like, I don't have time for a failure where right. like I get nothing out of it. Yeah. Right. I, I think that's a, a really smart way to look at it. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you about sort of a business endeavor that, that hasn't gone as well that I've been involved with. Um, and that's with the Ergo Kiwi Knife. Uh, I invested in that company. Uh, they had an excellent Kickstarter campaign. It's a fantastic product. But their big mistake, and these guys are young and they're kind of stubborn, is that they, they have two products. They have one that has the potential to be mass-produced, which is plastic and could have great margins. And then they have a handmade one that's beautiful um, but expensive because it's handmade in the U.S., and they just haven't gotten it through their head, and I think it's also because they're the younger, is if they go the handmade route, they need to go really high end. Because they do this kind of napkin size, oh, it'll take us this long, we can make this many a day, but then something goes wrong and it always takes longer, and the next thing you know, they're making no money selling things that are still expensive, but not expensive enough for it to be a viable business. Mm -hmm. And they've been so caught up on you know, controlling it that they haven't put enough time into fully figuring out the outsource manufacturing, which actually has the big potential of making a really innovative, incredible, uh, exacto style knife for about $20. Um, so I think what you're doing is smart is because you're thinking about the way there's a few ways businesses can scale. There's with volume, which is the most traditional way that people try to scale a business. It's like, Hey, we have one great restaurants. So let's come up with a great name, Applebee's, and then let's open a hundred <laughs> of them, right? And you know, they they blew up. I'm sure the the owners of the companies did quite well, but now it's sort of on the decline and isn't doing so well, um, closing down lots of locations. So another way would be, uh, so you know, they they saw an opportunity scale with what you do, Chris. Scaling in terms of quantity isn't super viable. There's only so many videos you can make a year. So you can see the limits of that type of approach. Uh, right. And because your style of video is also very personalized, very narrative driven, uh, it's less scalable than mine where I can sort of slide Jesse or my brother or Jamie into the videos. And it's because of the formatting, it's still right. pretty consistent. So my business is entirely scalable, but it's a little bit more than I would say yours. So you know, if, if you have certain limitations uh, because of earlier decisions that way, 
playing out and experimenting with the exact opposite, counterintuitive as it may seem, is actually a really smart strategy. It's like, hmm, how do I sort of increase revenue per thing that I do? And then how do I also uh, integrate a more robust way of researching and developing new techniques and materials into that process by going slower? So it's one of those examples where if you can see the limits of sort of just producing more and more and more, and it doesn't look like a great lifestyle or a great business sort of outcome, perhaps it's like, huh, how do I go more bespoke, more unique, and and then try to build more programming and content support around each project that I build? Yeah. Yep. All right. So last question is, question for the podcast. This is from Ethan Carter Designs. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on IGTV? Haven't really figured out its purpose yet. Um, yeah, I, I haven't really used it yet. I've watched other people's ones. I think it's a really smart move of Instagram. If I, I look at it this way, uh, I think of the YouTubers, I'm probably the most uh, down on YouTube. I mean, I love YouTube. It's a fantastic platform. Uh, it's a big part of what I do. But when I look at the way sort of trends are going in social media and the way video is consumed, YouTube will be fine, but I don't think it's in the best position. I would say Instagram to me is in a, is a much stronger position for the long run. Um, when I look around on a subway or you know public transportation, and when I see people sort of what's on their phone, I see way more people on Instagram scrolling around, watching short format videos, clicking through a whole series of stories, um, then I do sort of, you know, watching, you know, continuous sort of YouTube videos. The, the thing I think with IGTV that's particularly interesting is uh, you, can, you can still have that kind of navigational story kind of thing. Um, and since more and more people are watching video content on phones, I think Instagram is built around the sort of personal device where I still think YouTube and its DNA is built around more of a, a desktop or laptop computer. So I think it'll, it'll be built into the inherent functionality of touch screens and be a video player that, you know, I'm pretty sure people log into Instagram a lot more than they do uh, YouTube. Yeah. And so I, I think it's, you know, whatever it is now, it'll change. But looking at how successful stories is, uh, I'm hugely optimistic about it. I was just, uh, you know, when I saw the question, I just looked at on my highlights and I've been posting all the sort of little clips about the tiny house build to a Instagram highlight. And, you know, there's like sort of 40 clips. They all have over 10,000 views. And so that, that one little highlight has half a million views now. Um, and there's product tags and sponsor tags and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it has great engagement. There's tons of questions and, and, and messages off of those those individual posts. The other thing, it's a really interesting navigational format. And uh, I recently talked to some people for a new video app called Jump Rope that I think is pretty exciting, particularly for people that do sort of instructional information what, like what we do. So I've, I've long said that I don't think continuous video is a great way to do instructive content because if you're following along that means you're hitting pause rewind and stuff like that it's a unless the video's in real time which would be way too long you're you have to do some navigation if you're actually taking the instructions off of the video so i've always thought that chapterized video has a ton of potential 
And this app, Jump Rope, is doing exactly that. So it's a lot of recipes, fitness, DIY, arts and crafts, sort of how-to videos. And it's almost like with a story kind of format. where, you, And you can also do Amazon links and stuff like that. So people are going more and more mobile with their content consumption. And I, I think there's going to be – I think Instagram stories will will be – do a, you know, will change things a lot and be very useful for content producers. And I also think there'll be room for sort of other platforms that are experimenting with sort of more vertically oriented video formats as well. My initial impression, and I could go on to eat these words, but Instagram stories, I think that the strength of it is the brevity. Like that's what's good about it. And then to make it long format almost seems counterintuitive. It's like I don't know, Usain Bolt trying to be a marathon runner or something like that. Like, that's what's good about it is those little bite-sized chunks and you're just moving on from one thing to, to the next thing. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see as Instagram TV gets more popular, like, how people are enjoying the content there. I also think the that vertical is just inherently worse than a landscape, you know, portrait versus landscape aspect ratio, especially for the type of thing that we do. Um you know, it's just like if you think about the way that the human eye sees is more sideways than up and down. So it's just like a more natural thing to see something in landscape than portrait mode. Um, also, I think it's really good for like people or that are more personality based, I guess I would say, than projects, the kinds of things that we do on YouTube. I think it's it's really two different kinds of content that they're tailored towards hosting. Um, the idea of I don't know, just like all the energy and thought and work that you put into a project. I like the idea of it on YouTube and it being there and having some permanence, whereas things on Instagram really don't have that permanence. Ideally, somebody that finds me a year from now on YouTube, all that stuff is still new to them, whereas like the stuff that I put on Instagram just doesn't really even exist anymore. I don't know. Those are my initial thoughts when I think about Instagram TV. I, I agree. I, and I tend to think of it the same way. But the one ca- the one thing that makes me suspect that that might not always be the case would just be looking at the trends over the last five years of the amount of YouTube views that are now mobile in, in a mm-hmm. mobile environment already. And right. when I do see people watching YouTube on their phones, I'm still surprised at the number of people that watch YouTube on their phones with their phone in the vertical orientation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You want to look at like the comments or something. Um, but in, in particular, I think the the chapterized navigation to sort of uh, to sort of swipe and forward through a sea of short video clips is a is an interesting way that people are going to continue to uh, communicate. And I think that that formatting eventually is going to be uh, impactful within sort of what we do as sort of you know semi instructional video types. Well said, Mike. Do you have any thoughts? You're just you're out of it for Instagram. Uh, I don't have any really experience with it. My only my only take on it is kind of where you're at, Chris. Is I just I, I prefer long form content with YouTube just for the sake of its cataloging. It does a better job, I think, of cataloging and keeping evergreen content relevant. Um, but no, I'm excited to see how people use it. Uh, I've I've yet to be really impressed by it, or have or I'm I've yet to have been impressed by seeing anyone else use it in a really unique way. Uh, but I think the longer it's out, the more creative people will be with it. And people people figure anything out and figure out how right. things are useful. Um, I just haven't taken the time to really do a deep dive. 
No, I think that's a good point that the way that people are initially going to use it is just like, oh, I'll take what I was doing on YouTube and put it here. And that's not what it's made for. Like you're going to end up with a worse version of what you put on YouTube right. if you put it there. But yeah, as people embrace whatever it brings to the table, which is yet to be seen. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that was a little passive aggressive, better. Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is like, you know, it's, it's new. People have not yeah found the ways to, I don't want to even say exploit, that's the word that's popped into my head, but to take advantage of what it offers over YouTube. And like I said, I think that with traditional stories, it's evident to see what that brings. Like it is a lot easier to just like show your personality and do things that are not, like the fact that they're not permanent gives you more leniency to be like, I'm just going to put something stupid here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I would, I don't do a lot of like product review or unboxing videos or shop tours or Q&A videos on YouTube precisely for the reasons that you guys sort of stated about what you like about YouTube. You prefer it for its sort of like archived catalog of sort of completed projects. It's like you know, when you upload that video, it feels like you're you're adding another book to your library, right? Like there's another, yeah. another slot. Okay, that's my 200th. Boom. That'll be <laughs> useful for people as long as this platform exists, right? So there's, there's that feeling of you're adding something of significant value. You're not just meeting your quota of, hey, posting for the day. But I think that's that that strength of YouTube also implies like a weakness. It means that you have limited inventory. Right. Uh, you can't be posting 20 t- you know, times a week on it like the way you could on, on Instagram. So for people in, in our space, I think, you know, I suggest doing your Q&A videos and your shop tours if those haven't been great performers on your YouTube channel, then Instagram stories might be the format to do that. And, or I mean, uh, Instagram TV might, or IGTV might be the format to do that. I've always hadn't liked that so much for stories because I'd always get cut off just as I was explaining something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I think it'll be, it'll, it'll be useful for that. So I think I can see it, Mike, when you're, when you're back, I could see us sort of experimenting with a lot for, you know, while one of us is building, the other one sort of asking them questions and sort of live in the moment uh, kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Last thing. So just to your point, I think that's the thing that irks me a little bit about it is I feel like these different platforms have different strengths and different reasons that people like them and they bring different value to different people and to and different values to the creators that are using them. But it always feels like all of them want to be everything. Like they're all trying a way to like, throw their hat in the ring to be YouTube wants to be Instagram and Instagram wants to be YouTube and they all want to do everything. But it's like, you're kind of, you have different strengths and it almost works better if you just play to your strengths. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I don't know. I said, yeah, I agree. I agree. Cause yeah, do what you do best. There you, you go. You're doing the old man stay in your lane argument. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, where's my damn pop tart to, to, you know, from, from one third of the team that is uh, makes YouTube videos, but is now starting a tool company. Speaking of which, oh yeah, for real. <laughs> check out Maker Brand Company, who uh, posted a really awesome video on my Instagram of us just crushing a cinder block because that's what you do with clamps. Um, <laughs> I was actually surprised. I thought I was gonna get a lot more of the troll comments of like, "Why would you ever do that?" Uh, I think most people got it. There's one idiot that sort of, yeah, you don't need to do that, but it's a demonstration. Exactly. Um, 
So let us and know what else you want to see us crush in some Mega yeah. Brain claims. What do you want to see us crush? And Gary's are not an acceptable answer. <laughs> Absolutely not. Maybe some walnuts so that we could crush it and then take the nut out and then feed Gary. Use them yeah. as a nutcracker. Giant nutcracker. Yeah, we, we've gotten a lot of great uh, suggestions and sort of future sort of tool and product ideas. So keep those coming. Absolutely. And be sure to check out the Maker Brand uh, Instagram account as well. At Maker Brand Co. And if you haven't already, make sure and give us a review on the podcast app. That's five stars, and that's just going to the iTunes podcast app that you're listening through. Search us, click us, and let us know what you like about the show. If you're not following us personally on Instagram, we are at 4 Eyes Furniture, at Benjamin Ueda, at Modern Builds, and finally, at Modern Maker Podcast as a Collective. If you have any topic suggestions, anything you want to hear us talk about, you can always shoot us an email at modernmakerpodcast at gmail.com or just send us a DM on the Instagram that I just mentioned. Thanks everybody for listening and we hope you have a great rest of your week. Go build something cool. This has been the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye everybody. See ya. Bye. You know, just real quick while we're leaving. So it's not stay in your lane. It's double down on what you're good on. Shaq, you don't need to shoot three-pointers. Just keep dunking on people. Yeah, if anything, maybe learn how to shoot free throws, right? Free throws. Yeah. Free throws. We'll let you expand into free throws. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Later.